So we are uh, Hebrews 10, verse 26 through 39 this morning. There are handouts somewhere. There's a lot of you this morning. Maybe they're gone. Maybe they're floating around somewhere. Um, so Hebrews 10, 26 is the fourth of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. We've already saw them in chapters 2 and 3 and 6. And now we have chapter 10. And then in a couple months, we'll hit chapter 12 as well. And if you've read our text in preparation for this morning, which is always a good idea, or you, you're familiar with the warning passages, most people generally want an explanation of, okay, how does this warning passage fit into my theology? Explain how this happens to me. How do I have both assurance and warnings at the same time? Um, but let me just you know, let you down right up front. We're not doing that this morning. We did a little bit in Hebrews 6. If you go on our website and look that up, uh, you can find it online. But this morning, I have a single goal which is to encourage you to persevere in the faith. Um, Just one point of introduction before we get to that, though. This text in multiple parts and multiple verses has been debated a lot. We'll just say a lot in the last 2,000 years. There are many faithful Christians who I look up to who interpret this in different ways. They see things that are ambiguous and they put it with different meanings. Um, And they're faithful Christians who do that. There's also a lot of really, really bad interpretations that are just flat out wrong with, you know, nothing good to say about them in this text. Um, And we could get into the debates and explain why I'm teaching the way I am, but Again, if we do that, we're not going to have time to do what the author's actually trying to do, which is my goal as well, which is encourage you to persevere in the faith. And so you might think, you know, right up front, but I'm not thinking of leaving the faith. Why do I need to, you know, get this encouragement this morning? Things really aren't that difficult for Christians. I know like in the book of Hebrews, right, these guys are facing prison. Pretty soon they'll be facing the Colosseum if they don't give up their faith. Like if it comes between my life and my faith, maybe I need this encouragement, but I don't really need that right now, do I? So as we think about this as a whole, I think Jesus' parable of the soils is instructive for us. You, you know this parable, right? The sower goes out, he sows the seed. Some lands on the path, the birds eat it. This is like those who hear God's word, hear the gospel, and they never believe. Some of the seed falls in the good soil. It grows, it produces fruit 10, 20, 40 fold. These are the Christians who endure, they bear fruit. These are those who are saved. And then you have those two pesky, confusing soils in the middle, right? You have the, the thorny soil. And you have the rocky soil. The rocky soil, the seed goes in, it sprouts up. It looks like this person's a Christian. But then hardships and persecutions come, and it doesn't have roots, and it dies. They are not saved. That's kind of what the book of Hebrews is warning against, the persecution that might lead us to fall away. But the thorny soil might seem more applicable to us. This is Matthew 13, 22, right? It says the thorny soil, that plant dies for three reasons. 
well, two in Matthew, Luke and Mark give us three reasons. Because it's choked out by the cares of the world. Not persecution, just cares of the world, like making your annual dentist appointment and shoveling your driveway and getting your kids to high school sports practice. You focus on these cares of this world and your focus leaves God. You slowly fade away, not intentionally leaving, but these cares creep in to where you don't persevere in the faith. Or, Matthew 13, 22, your faith is choked out by the deceitfulness of riches. I made a decision for Christ when I was a kid, and like, things were easier. And I'm going to go back to church after, what, I can fill up my 401k a little bit and have some security. Then I'll focus on Christianity again. You know, I'll, I'll pay attention to God after our house is paid off, but right now I need to make these extra mortgage payments. As soon as my business takes off and it's self-sufficient and I can hire other people, then I'll be in church, then I'll care about God. But right now, I need to focus on my business. And in this time of waiting, we neglect church, we neglect the word, we neglect God, we shun the means of grace that God has given us to help us to persevere, and we slowly leave the faith. I think the hardest one is the third one that Mark and Luke give us, Mark 4.19, Luke 8.14. The pleasures of life, the desires for other things. This is saying, hey, God is the giver of good gifts, and so we start worshiping these gifts instead of the giver, and it pulls us away from God. Good things, pleasures of life. I mean, we're talking about Netflix and working in our garden and making blanket forts with your kids. Good things that pull us away from God because we're choked out by the pleasures of life. Um, I give all the students and student ministry books for their birthday. Hannah's birthday was last week, and I gave her um, Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. It's a call to make your life count for the glory of God and the good of other people. And you can just see her heart. She's going back to Africa to work the medical missions in a month or two. You can see her heart and her love for God and others. And in it, he gives a really good description of, you know, wasting your life on the pleasures of this world. Let me read you like two paragraphs from this. In April 2000, Ruby Eleison and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon, West Africa. Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, the car went over a cliff, and they were both killed instantly. I asked my congregation, was this a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great passion, namely to be spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ, even two decades after most of their American counterparts have retired to throw away their life on trifles? No, this is not a tragedy. That's a glory. These lives were not wasted, and these lives were not lost. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Mark 8.35 I'll tell you what a tragedy is. 
Consider this story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who, quote, took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. <coughs> now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream. But it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life, before you give an account to God your creator, be this. Playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? That is a tragedy, and people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And if we buy into the lie of this American dream that advertisers are constantly selling to us, we perhaps will be those who focus on the pleasures of life, those good, enjoyable things, and fade back from the faith. This is a danger that encompasses all of us. We need the encouragement from this text to persevere. And so since we're not in the same, you know, situation of persecution as the Hebrews, maybe we're in a different, more difficult position. Instead of choosing between black and white, we face the danger of fading into a endless shade of gray. We too, though, stand on the precipice, perhaps between heaven and hell, mercy and wrath, salvation and judgment, and there's a good chance we don't even see our danger. So I am here this morning to encourage you, persevere in the faith. Don't give up. Don't get distracted by the cares of this world or the deceit of riches or the pleasures of, of this world, but rather hold fast to God as he holds on to you. So Hebrews 10, 26 through 39, let me read this for us this morning. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy, on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing. <laughs> to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. 
For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So as we get into this text this morning, I want you to consider two things. You'll see that on the note. First, consider what might happen if you turned away from the faith, if you turned away from Christ. That is, consider the consequences. And then second, consider the faith you had when you first believed, back when it was strong, back before the days got difficult. That is, consider your confidence. So let's start with this first one. Consider the consequences. This is verses 26 through 30. What would the consequences be if you turned away from Christ? If you committed apostasy, if you fell away, that's what I'm convinced sinning deliberately in verse 26 means. It's, it's leaving the faith. It's what Hebrews 3.2 or Hebrews 6.6 6 would call falling away from the living God. It's what Hebrews chapter 2 calls drifting away in verse 1 or neglecting salvation in verse 3. When we get to Hebrews 12.25, he'll call it refusing God, refusing the God who speaks. That's what this whole book of Hebrews is about, is a warning against leaving the faith and an argument to stay. It's about not forsaking God, but holding fast to him. What are those consequences if you did not do that? What's the text say? There is no longer a sacrifice for your sins. If you turn from Christ, if you fade away, if you drift... If you are deceived by riches to forsake Christ, if your soul is killed by the thorns of the pleasures of this life, don't <clears throat> expect salvation. Expect a fury of fire that consumes all God's adversaries, the fire that consumes those who reject God's grace and his lordship. This is a hard truth for us, but it's plainly in the text right there. The preacher of Hebrews, under the power of the Holy Spirit, wrote these words for us. After coming to a knowledge of the truth, that's coming to faith, if you have this high-handed turning away from God, if you don't continue in the faith, you will receive judgment. I mean, where else are you going to go? If you've scorned Christ, We've just spent three chapters arguing that animal sacrifices aren't going to do you any good. How are you going to deal with your sins if you don't give a rip about the one who has actually dealt with your sins? We have one high priest who you have scorned. Consider the consequences of this. What's the rationale of this? We have two reasons to expect judgment if you turn away. The first is in verse 28 and 29. It's the law of Moses. This is from Deuteronomy. You've studied Deuteronomy 19 and 13 in the women's Bible study, right? When there's a high-handed sin or one trying to lead you away from God, men are to die without mercy. 
Moses says, when someone says, hey, let's go worship these foreign gods, you shall neither yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Deuteronomy 13, 8 through 9. And the argument of the book of Hebrews is this, that the Old Testament is a shadow of things to come, and the reality, the substance, is Christ. So if the shadow is death, what kind of reality must this be pointing to? It's not going to be less than death. It's going to be a greater reality. Death is the consequence for rejecting the shadow, not the substance. But look at what would happen to the one who is rejecting the substance. Verse 29 says, He is trampling underfoot the Son of God, showing a mocking, scornful carelessness towards Christ. He is profaning the blood of the covenant, rejecting Christ's blood that should purify him. He's saying it's unclean. Toss it away with a medical waste. And he is outraging the Spirit of God. It's another way of saying blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, calling unclean, calling satanic even the things that the Spirit's doing. He's committing the unpardonable sin here, the one of which there is not forgiveness. If death is for rejecting the shadow, what's the consequences of that? Second rationale, the character of God. Verse 30. You know, our rejection of Christ isn't an ignorance. We can't please, we didn't know about God. You know, I have books on my shelves tragically written by people who are no longer Christians, who have left the faith, and they say good and true and helpful things about God, and they've fallen away. When they turned from God, they didn't not understand what they were doing. They knew his character. <clears throat> and we know his character as well. Look at verse, I think it's verse 30 here. We know him who said, and then he quotes from the song of Moses, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. We know that God does not share his glory with another. He will judge his adversaries, verse 27. So based on this character of God and this law of Moses, consider what would happen if you fell away and let those consequences motivate you to persevere, to continue in the faith. Um, so verse 31 kind of sums all of this up. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you have spurned the Son, you have every reason to fear the Father. And listen, some of you need this warning more than you know. You need the teeth of this text to bite you and to wake you up. You're playing with matches thinking there's no danger of fire. You're putting forth minimum effort to put yourself in the streams of God's grace where his grace flows in abundance. You put forth minimum effort to be among his people, to hear his word, to read, to pray for mercy, and to pray for grace. You're not drawing near to Christ or holding fast to your confession or stirring up one another to love and good deeds like Matt exhorted us last week. You need this warning because that's a dangerous place to be. Now listen, I, I want you to hear what I'm saying it is Christ who saves. It is by his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection, and 
faith in that that one is saved. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, not a result of works, so that no man can boast. This is the gospel. However, what I am saying is that faith isn't something you do one time when you're 12 years old at VBS and then you put that aside to live your life. Faith is the continual state of the Christian. Faith is the way that we relate to God. We're always looking to Christ, persevering in Christ, trusting in Christ. We trust the one who keeps us trusting by faith. So if your faith is growing dim, or it's almost out, you need this word of warning to consider the consequences. Listen, there could come a day when you read about Chrissy and Eleanor Seidelman being killed by a drunk driver. And in the darkness of my grief, I start thinking, is this how God rewards his people. I've spent my entire adult life serving you. I've poured out my life for you and for this church. I've strived to love my wife as Christ loved the church and raise my daughter in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I didn't pursue money. I went to the church instead. I served faithfully. I taught. I invested in teens. Instead of looking for worldly joys and worldly pleasures, I poured myself out for the Lord. And this is my reward. God takes my wife and my daughter and lets the drunkard live. If this is how God rewards his servants, I'm done. If this is the wages of a minister, of a servant, of a seminary graduate, I, I don't want any part of this. I am walking away. If this is how God pays his soldiers, give me the discharge, I am out. I have one life to live, and I'm not giving it to this God. In that moment, I need you guys to come and tell me, Dan, consider the consequences of what you're doing. None of us have the faith that's above turning from God, but we have the, the, the warnings of Scripture that help us. Hey, it seems like a good idea now, but consider where it leads to. We have the church to come to us with these promises of judgment, telling us, don't turn away. I need you to remind me of God's character and of his promises. Do what Matt said last week. Stir me up so that I hold fast to my confession of hope. I need these warnings. You need these warnings. It is a matter of life and death. Some of us need the warning of 26 through 31. We need a boot to the pants to get us in gear to pay attention to what God is saying. Others, though, need more of an arm around their shoulder to get us to persevere. We're not just told to consider the consequences through warning. We're also told to consider our confidence in the second half of this text, in 32 through 39. God says, remember your struggle. Remember your struggle, 32 through 34. Look back at the early days of your faith and consider what your faith was like then back before life got really difficult 
for you, back when your faith was strong. Let me just be maybe a little bit uncomfortably open with you and tell you about my sin because I think you guys will relate and it will be helpful to understand this. Being, it's Valentine's Day, so I feel like you know that can make up for this. But being married is difficult. I am not always loving Christy, treasuring her in the way that she deserves. Like, I know that marriage is a call to die to myself. Christ is the example of the perfect husband. And I whine and complain and get angry and manipulate. Like, my life depends on it. I'm fighting for my life in these moments, and I sin against her. And then I convince myself that any sin on my part isn't actually my fault. Hey, I'm sorry I raised my voice, but if you didn't, whatever, my sin is not my problem. My sin is the result of you. I read commands in 1 Peter 3, 7, live with your wife in an understanding way, and I'm able to laugh them off. I mean, who can actually understand women? Like, why, why would I obey that? That's, you can tell that's written by the Holy Spirit and not someone who's married. I'm actually confident here. Did not intend that to be that funny. I'm confident here because later in that verse it says, live with your wife in an understanding way for the sake of your prayers that they are not hindered. One of the ways that God protects women from husbands that can act like me is he will not listen to my prayers to protect her if I'm acting like that towards her. So I'm confident that my ministry here towards some of you and towards your families has fallen flat because of my unwillingness to repent and honor and treasure Chrissy. One of the things that helps me fight my sins of anger and discontentment and arrogance and whatever other sin labels you want to put in there is thinking back to when Christy and I first fell in love. I remember walking around Louisville Parks, watching the sunset with her, just being overwhelmed by Christy's kindness. How I loved her heart that she had for others. Her passion for the Lord to serve him, to worship him, and her desire to be used by God. I remember falling in love with her smile and her laugh and her caring compassion. I remember having the thoughts like, this woman is going to make an incredible wife and mother to someone. And if I have any sense in me whatsoever, I need to do everything in my power to make sure that someone is me. I remember how she looked walking down the aisle. My goal for our wedding day was not to cry. When the flower girl and the ring bearer walked in, I broke like the levees of New Orleans. <laughs> I was overwhelmed with joy and love and a gratitude towards God that he is letting us spend our lives together. I think back to our first year of marriage when suffering and hell was assailing us on every front and we were in a constant state 
of difficulty and mourning, and I saw her quiet strength and her faith throughout all of our trials. And I realized she's still the same woman. No, she's not. She's a better woman now than she was then because God has been growing her and refining her and making her like Christ for the last seven years. And she has no right to be sinned against in the way that I do. Considering our past gives me strength to walk righteously in the present. I'm reminded of how greatly I have been blessed, how faithful God has been to us. I know our love is real. I know that God has joined us together. I know there wasn't greener grass back in Egypt. So I'm an idiot if I continue in my stubborn arrogance and my unloving nature. Dan, don't ruin such a precious gift that God has given. Repent. Ask for forgiveness. Deal with your sins. Deal with your issues. Cherish your wife that God has given you. As I remember the love that we had early on, I'm kind of taken out of my sinful mindset and I'm given an accurate perspective on how I should be living in the here and now. I'm reminded of the power that God gives me grace to do what he requires by reflecting on how he has in the past. That's what the author of Hebrews is asking his congregation to do. Yes, it's tough now, but consider your beginnings. Consider the start of your faith. Look at verse 32. You endured such sufferings. Some of you were publicly put up to be mocked and to be beaten by your faith, or for your faith. Some of you were guilty by association with those who were mocked and beaten. Some of your church, your family, were thrown into prison for their faith. And you reached the point where you had to decide, will I risk my life and my livelihood to go and serve them, to bring them food so they don't starve and blankets so they don't freeze? Would you publicly identify with Christ and his church? He said, yes. Let my goods be plundered. I don't care. I'm going to identify with the church. I have faith. I want to serve my family because I have something better than my goods. I have this family of Christ in the church. Don't miss this. Look at verse 34. How did they accept the plundering of their goods? Joyfully. You joyfully accepted the plundering. They looked at their situation and thought, if I can either have this stuff or I can identify with Christ and his body and serve the church and hold fast to my confession, it's clear what I'm going to choose. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Surely it's better than my stuff. I mean, why would they have joy in their suffering for others? for their suffering, for their faith? Why did they joyfully accept the plundering of their property? Again, 34, since you knew 
They knew. They didn't hope. They didn't think. They didn't wish for. They knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. Take my money. Take my car. Take my house. Take my goods. Take all of these aluminum treasures from me because I have a treasure of gold that you can never touch, that can never be taken away from me. What might it profit a man if he gains the entire world but loses his soul? I'm sticking with Jesus and sticking with his people. The money that you stole, it might last me another 30, 40, 50 years. Jesus is eternal and the joy of his presence, it's abiding. It will never be taken away. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, his truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And so they suffered with joy. Remember your struggles. Remember God's faithfulness. Remember the joy you had. And don't throw that confidence away. Rather, let it strengthen you to get through these difficult times. Keep trusting God. Look at verse 35. Don't throw away your confidence. Confidence here is the same concept as the knowing of verse 34. You knew you had an inheritance, a better possession. Don't throw away your confidence there. Or it's the same as the faith in verse 38 and 39. Don't throw it away. You saw how good it was, how joy-producing it was. Continue to trust. Don't throw away this precious gift and treasure. Why? Haven't we suffered enough? Can't we just give up? What's Why? Because by keeping your confidence, you receive the reward. We see this in 35 and 39. He who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, 13. The crown of life, this salvation, it's not given to those who start the race. It's given to those who finish. We already looked at the failures of the wilderness generation who came strongly out of Egypt but then died off in judgment in the wilderness. Don't be like them. We've already had four warnings about the danger of falling away. Continue on in the faith. Persevere so that you are saved. 38 and 39 say this much, right? Those who shrink back are not of God. They're destroyed. But the righteous one, quoting Habakkuk here, lives by faith. Those who persevere are the righteous. Those who are saved, those who live. So church, Christian, don't shrink back. Don't see that it's difficult out there or that there's pleasure out there that makes you shrink back from God. Rather, endure in the faith. God made you strong. Think of how you have suffered with joy. We're the people of faith. We're not those who shrink back. Continue on in what you know about God. Let's live by faith. Things are hard. I get that. The allure of this world is strong. I know, it's strong for me too. The pleasures of this life are real. And they seem more real than the pleasures of God sometime. But the judgment's also real. And the rewards for the faithful are real. I don't know, you know, everyone's specifics today, but I bet the common denominator is that we're all a little bit weary. We're tired. We're exhausted. 
Some of us more than others are maybe tempted to throw in the towel and just give up on this because it's too hard. We see the wicked out there flourishing and we want to flourish too. We've been convinced that the real life-fulfilling pursuit is the lie that's being sold to us on TV and on ads every day that it's retiring early to collect shells. We see the bills coming in and our kids' college tuition approaching, and we think, I need to focus on money for a while, then I'll deal with this whole Christianity and eternity thing, and we start to drift away. Whether it's the thorns of, or the, thorns of the pleasures of life or the rocks of persecution, or the sins that are tugging on us, trying to pull us away from Christ, the plea of this text is to endure, to live by faith. So as we're caught up in this struggle, take heed of this text. Be encouraged to persevere by it. Take time, perhaps, and think of the consequences of what might happen if you left the faith. Take time to think about your, your, your spiritual journey early on, back when you were strong, back when you saw and experienced the joy of being counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Don't throw that confidence away. Let it rekindle your love for God and let it rekindle that confidence that you once had. Don't, don't throw in the towel. Persevere. Endure in your confession. Walk continually by faith. So let me pray for us and then just two minutes let you know where we're going in the book of Hebrews. Heavenly Father, we need this text. It's a scary text. It's maybe a confusing text. It's a difficult text. But Lord, it is a much needed text. Lord, for those of us who need to be awoken out of our our delusion that we're not in a dangerous place. I pray that you would use the warning to awaken us, that we would consider the consequences of turning from you and that we would hold fast to our confession. For those who don't need warning but need comfort, I pray that you would encourage them from the second half of this text that they would remember the love for you and the joy and the confidence they had at first and that you would give that to them again. For those of us who are like me that need both parts of this text because we're constantly justifying and shifting in our minds, I pray that you would warn us and that you would comfort us and that you would help us to endure. Lord, it is you who saves. It is you who give faith. It is you who keeps us trusting. So we pray, Lord, use every means at your disposal. Use your word. Use your church. Use your Holy Spirit to keep us enduring in the faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the question that you have after you close out chapter 10 is, if I need to live by faith, what does that actually look like? I understand the concept. I understand the danger. Give me an example of what it might look like to live by faith. And so excited for the missions conference, even more excited to get back into chapter 11, because if I'm going to yell for 40 minutes about living by faith, I want to know what that looks like. And in chapter 11, we have 20 some examples of, okay, 
here is what it looks like to live by faith. We have a great multitude of faithful witnesses coming alongside of us, standing on the sidelines of our race, cheering us on, speaking of God's faithfulness to them, saying, look how good God has been to me. He is going to be the same for you. As we run, they're cheering, encouraging us to keep our eyes on the prize, to strengthen our weary and weak legs, and keep going to run this race with endurance, not giving up, not falling away, but receiving what has been promised. That's what we have in our next chapter. So Spirit come, put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle, that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. As saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of his grace, we hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory.